Hello and welcome to this episode of the Resource Talks. This is a uh, special one because we're talking about one of the uh, technologies that has built the modern world, will continue to build the modern world, and has one of the most uh, profound physical impacts on the environment. And we have to get to the bottom of it. There's no way around it. It's the uh, concrete issue. We have some of the world experts in various ways on concrete, Karen Scrivener, Jason Crawford, and Erwin Kuhn. I'll ask you to introduce yourselves in a second. Um, what I like with this episode to do, and with most of the episodes in this series, is to try and find the middle ground between <laughs> alarmism and and glibness. And I think we'll we'll we'll, we'll get there with the with the spread of um, comment. I think I think you'll agree that we you know there's so much to cover here. Hopefully, you know, people will find this useful and accessible. Um, maybe start with you, um, uh, Jason, and then and then Karen, and then Owen, in terms of just present yourself. Uh, and your background, and then we'll we'll kind of go through the content. Sure. My name is Jason Crawford. I'm a writer about the history of technology and the philosophy of progress. Um, I write on my blog called The Roots of Progress. And uh, I am far from an expert on concrete, although I know a thing or two. What I hope to bring to this discussion is um, maybe some of the broader context about uh, sort of the history of industry and, uh, you know, and again, the philosophy of human progress. Karen. Okay, I'm Karen Scrimner. I'm Professor of Construction Materials at EPFL in Switzerland. Uh, I've been doing research on cement and concrete for over 40 years now. I started as an academic at the Imperial College in the UK. I then went to France where I worked in the industry for six years and for the last 20 years I've been at EPFL where our laboratory is really um, trying to do all we can to improve the sustainability of this material but also to really better network the um, academic research with industrial needs. Great, Erwin. Hi, so I'm Erwin Kuhn. Um, I'm currently working with Vika, a large uh, French um, international cement group. Um, and I'm working on building models for the future about how they plan to get to basically zero emissions by let's say 2050 or 2060. So my background here is a bit special because um, I actually come from the computer science world and uh, decided to switch to um, learning more about industry and energy systems, uh, specifically trying to focus on reducing greenhouse gas emissions, uh, because I believe that focusing on this and climate is the most important thing uh, I want to work on today. And so to basically place this into context, um, the, uh, it's a software tool, uh, and we are working on the software tool to kind of map out uh, what the future is going to look like for this um, for the group and the industry in general. Great, thank you. So let's let's start off with the biggest of all pictures: what concrete is to society. I mean, where how did we find it? Um, Maybe start with you, Karen. I mean, what is the history, the big picture history of, of, uh, or maybe let's start with you, Jason. What's the big picture history? Because I think you you're, you have a fair insight to this of concrete in relation to society, and if you like progress. Sure, 
Concrete um, or cement, rather, is one of the oldest crafts. Wait, wait, wait. Um, wait, wait, wait just, just to set this up, just to set this up, so because because uh, in, what is the difference between concrete and cement? I mean, just so we all know. Sure. The terms are often used interchangeably, uh, but technically, um, cement is to concrete sort of as flour is to a cake. Cement is uh, a powder that is an ingredient in the final product. It's sort of the uh, primary kind of binding agent. And then um, concrete is a, you know, is a product that we make out of cement. There are other products we make, such as mortar. Um, you know, which uh, is used to stick uh, bricks or, or blocks together. Mm. Concrete is the stuff that you pour into a mold and then you've got a solid form. Mm. Um, so, so, so concrete is, is basically... Um, cement is the sticky stuff and concrete is like sand and, and stone dust, like dust, like particulate stone added, roughly speaking, right? Yeah, so I like to think of cement as kind of like, think of it like a, a, a pancake mix. You know, it's like instant stone, just add water. You mix water and cement, you get kind of a, a paste, you know, and then if you, if you, uh, but you really need to add um, larger uh, sort of particles into it, uh, right. which are called aggregate. So you mix sand in with the, the cement and you can get mortar and that's like a paste that, you know, it's sort of like a rock glue. You can stick bricks together with it, you know, that sort of thing. Um, or if you pour in bigger things like gravel and pebbles along with the sand, then you get, uh, you know, concrete, which you can pour into molds and make sidewalks and runways and, you know, roads and, and that sort of thing. So, so, that's how, the so how, how did society discover this? Has it been discovered in lots of places over time? Was it one cultural innovation that diffused? I mean, where does this all come from? Uh, I don't know if it had multiple independent discoveries. That's quite possible. Um, I do know that it is one of the oldest crafts. Um, it's older than metalworking, older than pottery, possibly older than agriculture. Uh, I believe there were uh, floors made of cement or, or of limestone, uh, kilned limestone in found at uh, Gobekli Tepe, which is an archaeological site in Turkey that dates back to, I believe, 9600 BC. So this is long in prehistory. The origins of this uh, technology are, you know, lost in the mists of time. We have, of course, no idea uh, who invented it or when, because this was long before writing. So, mm. and in terms of the history of well progress or the history of civilization, I'll come to you one in one in one in one second, Karen, just to kind of get a, a few strands out of Jason first. W what has been the where, where where did it start to be, as it were, a bedrock? in metaphorical and literal terms of, of, as it were, progress for society or a society? Uh, well, probably the most famous ancient users of concrete was the Roman Empire. Um, they were masters of concrete. They built, uh, you know, aqueducts and um, the Pantheon, you know, that uh, famous domed structure in Rome that has the big hole in the top, lets in light. Um, the Colosseum, right? So they had these uh, these sort of monumental building projects where they used it. They also figured out how to make some improved cement formulas. So for instance, they would mix in volcanic ash um, into the cement, and this makes a uh, an actually better, stronger type of cement, the forerunner of kind of modern cement formulas, um, which has a number of properties, including the ability to set underwater, which is a really uh, good thing if you're building, you know, piers or harbors, that kind of thing. Mm. Karen, historically, what's your framing of, of the role of cement and concrete? Well, I think, uh, you know, Jason's given the early history. And then after the Romans, uh, a lot of this technology, it kind of survived a little bit, but was largely lost. And it was around the, you know, the mid 1700s that people realized that the material they were using, which is uh, calcined lime, 
didn't give very good properties underwater and start they started looking for better properties and it was joseph smeaton who called himself the first who was the first person to call himself a civil engineer who started to discover that if you had um, limestone with some clay in it when that was calcined that gave much better properties so quite famously he built the Eddiston Lighthouse on the south coast of England which uh, resisted much better to the uh, the storms and everything like that and then I think it was a gradual process that kind of happened in parallel in several countries in Europe uh, Louis Vicar in France did some very famous research but the person who really came out with the kind of, it wasn't really a technological breakthrough, it was more a marketing breakthrough, was uh, Joseph Aspin. And he came up with this name Portland Cement because he wanted people to think that um, the cement, when it was set, looked like Portland stone, which was the most sought after building material at the time. Mm. Um, and it was his staff who then gradually worked out that in fact, to get the best properties, you had to go to higher and higher temperatures when you were doing firing. So it, it was kind of a gradual process uh, starting in the mid 1700s, going through the uh, 1800s. And really, I think the takeoff in use of concrete has only come in the last uh, 100 years or so. Erwin, have you got any, I mean, you're up against two pretty, pretty impressive heavyweights here. Have you got more f framing to add on the historical like grounding of, of concrete and cement? Uh, one thing I'll add, because it first surprised me when I was learning about concrete, is that the process by itself since the 1850s and Portland cement hasn't fundamentally changed. And the technology has evolved around it and has become very efficient today, but it's basically uh, the same exact, uh, the same process of calcining lime, uh, limestone around 1400 degrees in large kilns. And then uh, out of that, you get some small uh, nodules that are like small rocks that you just grind to get the cement. And then you operate the magic mix to get the concrete as uh, Jason described. And th um, this is actually surprising because this was, this was surprising to me because, um, just I, I would I would have thought that you could maybe get to a, let's say a better formulation or you could invent something new, but actually when you look at uh, the um, properties you want out of cement and out of a binder that uh, when you mix it wa with water you can get solid rock, and you look at the amount of it we use, and then at the av uh, available materials in the Earth's crust that can be used to actually achieve those properties. And you basically end up finding the, uh, the formulation of Portland cement and similar cements uh, by itself. So it's kind of a natural fit um, that we uh, end up achieving to, uh, on this technology. Hmm. Right. We'll, we'll come back to that in detail. Were you going to say something, Karen? Well, yeah, I mean, I just wanted to sort of, you know, refine that a bit because, um, you know, first of all, the stuff that's used to make cement isn't, it's 80% limestone, but very important, 20% of it is, is clay. And, um, you know, clay is the really one of the most abundant things we have on earth. Limestone is also pretty abundant, but not quite so much. And the, the good fortune we had in Europe was that we have this 
uh, very close together deposits of clay and deposits of limestone. So in fact, uh, Vika, the company uh, Irwin works for, um, founded its business on a, de a deposit of rock where the limestone and clay are mixed in exactly the right proportions. And they actually called this natural cement rather than artificial cement where they had to take the clay from one place and the limestone from another. Mm. So, so you mentioned, Karen, that, that the, that the um, use or consumption of cement has kind of massively increased in the last hundred years. Um, is it the case that somehow that's just kind of, is that a, an epiphenomenon of the Industrial Revolution or is there some big trigger of the uptake? Was there some, because Erwin's suggesting that there haven't been a you know, big technological breakthrough. So what was it that drove the uptake of cement other than maybe just the technical evolution of society wanting more things, wanting more structural material? Well, I think there was a big structural revolution in the discovery of, uh, you know, reinforced concrete. So, um, you know, first uses of reinforcement were, were, were quite early, but then it really started to get going with the work of Fresinet in France, I think was around the end of the 1800s, if I remember. And, you know, then the sort of first quarter or so of the 20th century was really working out the structural performance of concrete when it was reinforced with steel, which enables these, you know, incredible structural um, incredible structures, you know, bridges, cantilevers, uh, all this kind of thing. And, and then, of course, you've got one huge stimulus after the Second World War, where there was a real need for rapid rebuilding, uh, which unfortunately led to uh, a lot of examples of rather not very nice concrete architecture. And uh, then most recently, we've had this huge uh, boost from the uh, development of China, um, which has sort of in the last 30 years gone from being a very small user of cement to making over half the cement that's used worldwide today. Uh, and just to add so to, to, what, uh, to what Karen was saying there, I think she's absolutely right that, that reinforced concrete was a big deal. And the reason for this, just to add some background for, for those who aren't uh, kind of in the industry, is that uh, concrete uh, on its own has very high compressive strength. That is, if you are, um, say, you know, you make a column and you stack things on top of it, uh, it's very strong in that way. Um, but it does not have nearly as good tensile strength. That's when you're trying to pull it apart. And if you want to make a cantilevered uh, deck, for instance, like think of the famous house Falling Water uh, by Frank Lloyd Wright. It's got those, uh, those uh, cement decks, concrete decks that kind of are cantilevered out. And uh, if you do that to normal concrete, you're, you're putting tensile strength on it. Um, it. Part of it's getting pulled apart and, and it's much weaker in that direction. So what we do with reinforced concrete is we add a, uh, a skeleton or a sort of lattice work of uh, iron or steel bars. Uh, iron has very high tensile strength compared to, to uh, concrete. So you put the two of them together and you get something that's strong uh, sort of in, in both dimensions. You get the best of both worlds. And so that has, uh, as Karen said, uh, created uh, the ability to do not just domes and arches the way the ancient Romans did, but really uh, a variety of very modern forms. So to put it in, in, in kind of very stark terms, would you say that um, uh, modernity and scale in the built environment is a, is a function of reinforced concrete, or is that too simplistic? I mean, I mean things like bridges and skyscrapers, that's, right, yeah, fundamentally. That's 
it's a key element. I mean, I do think, you know, as you indicated earlier, just the general growth of the population and the economy overall over the last couple hundred years is sort of the, the, the biggest factor. We've used a lot more concrete because we've used a lot more of everything and we have a lot more people and we have a lot more uh, wealth per capita. So, uh, you know, that's just a natural consequence. But then if you look at the, um, th- that's sort of the macro trend. But then if you look on the ground, there are always innovations in everything that allow that to happen, right? That kind of exponential growth was not the norm for most of human history. So there are yeah. always technological breakthroughs that, um, that, that allow that kind of curve to keep going. And uh, I think we've covered the major ones here now. So, Karen, yourself, would you say that that reinforce? I mean, I think you've said, you've you've said it, but I'm going to ask you to say it explicitly: is reinforced force concrete, as it were, the trigger to into the to the modern built environment? Well, it's one of the triggers which enables us to build these, uh, you know, very high tall buildings, uh, very uh, you know important bridges span, spanning great distances. I mean, the first skyscrapers were actually built in steel. Uh, now concrete's largely taken over um, for for a multitude of reasons. But I think we have to see that concrete also contributes in a lot of other ways. It contributes to roads. It contributes to things like dams, where the property of being watertight is extremely important. Um, so, you know, it's not, it's not just reinforced concrete. There are an awful lot of other uses. In fact, well, so uh, we made a calculation Sorry. that Sorry, we made a calculation that only about um, 30, 40 percent of cement is actually used in reinforced concrete. Erwin, hmm. uh, you were talking about the technical advance uh, of, of concrete without referencing reinforced concrete. Are there a technical, are there, what would you say are the technical advances that matter to scale and kind of modern you know, uh, usefulness in, in concrete if the core technology has not improved. I mean, reinforcement with, with rebar, with, 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 with steel elements um, is part of it. But are there any other technical advances that are notable? So in terms of the advances, um, I was especially talking about cement, uh, the yeah. formulation itself. Um, but the advances in cement mostly have been the evolution of the type of kiln that is used to produce cement. So you have like a variety of, the, of different processes yeah. uh, that, and the most modern one today is going to be a dry kiln where basically the raw ingredients are put, are put in a dry form um, into the kiln, which minimizes the energy that is required to perform the reaction, uh, which actually, so with all, um, and the kiln itself is, uh, to imagine it, it's generally a horizontal kiln that rotates on itself and is generally multiple doze, uh, dozens of meters long uh, and heats up up to 1500 degrees. Uh, and the, with the innovation around the design of kilns, um, I think they actually are some of the most efficient uh, industrial machine, uh, ther- ther- uh, thermal industrial machines in use today, which is actually mm. very impressive uh, in this case. Mm. So, and, and then you also have evolution on, uh, on the side of grinding the materials and then the clinker that comes out of the kiln itself. Uh, I think we will come back to what is uh, what clinker is uh, later in the discussion, um, as well as the formulations that have uh, steadily improved. Because you can actually, like depending on a few components in the formulation, uh, depending on, for instance, admixtures, uh, you can actually get a lot more mileage out of the same 
quantity of cement. So you can get, for example, uh, either a stronger concrete mm. or use less cement to achieve the same strength just by uh, changing sometimes a few percentage of admixtures. Uh, on this, I, I think Karen will be able to provide a much more technical context. Mm. Um, just one last thing, actually, to for the historical context, there are two figures uh, that really helped me understand just how much concrete we use and how it has evolved since the 1950s. Mm -hmm. um, for the kind of the growth in China, the very famous uh, figure uh, that's been put out is that China in three years, so from 2011 to 2013, used more cement uh, than the United States in the whole of the 20th century. Mm. And so a lot more. Yeah, we'll, so we will come on to that in a, in, yeah. in a bit, but let's just to yeah. keep it at the level of, sort of the, the civilizational yeah. level. Let, 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 Jason, were you going to say something? Sorry. So at the civilizational level, um, let me ask you this question. I mean, I, I think you might resist answering it, but I'm going to kind of push you for an some kind of answer. Is it the case that society that is, is it the case that society would be in trouble if we didn't have concrete and reinforced concrete? Uh, or another way of asking that is, are there alternative technologies that could, as it were, receive the, the development, you know, and get, and development requirements of, of society as it evolves, whether in terms of numbers of people and, you know, to advance society's interests? And then the third version of the question is, how would society be different if we didn't have concrete? Maybe you, you kick off with that one, Jason. Yeah, sure. Um, I mean, concrete and other forms of cement are absolutely essential to industrial civilization. Yes, our, our entire world would be different if we didn't have this technology. Um, I mean, the obvious things are sort of the buildings that we build. And, uh, you know, before we had the use of, uh, of brick and concrete for most of our structures, um, you know, as, as late as the late 1800s, early 1900s, most of our cities were made out of wood. Um, and that was an enormous fire hazard. If you go back in history, entire cities essentially burned to the ground on a fairly regular basis in historical terms. Um, many of the great cities, I mean, London burned many times. Chicago famously, uh, you know, a lot of it burned in, in 1871. Um, pretty much every major city that's been around for any period of time um, had these major fires, you know, maybe once or twice a century. Um, uh, again, pretty often in, in historical terms. And, you know, building with brick and concrete is one of the ways that we reduced that hazard. Um, and then there's all sorts of other infrastructure, you know, that is kind of keeping our lives running on a daily basis, but that we usually take for granted and, and don't stop to appreciate. Um, power plants, uh, you know, a, a typical electrical power plant needs a lot of concrete. Um, uh, runways, uh, you know, and roads uh, for, for transportation infrastructure, not to mention, you know, docks and harbors for the cargo ships that, you know, bring us uh, our, the cheap goods that we buy. Um, so, yeah, there are, uh, there are enormous number of uses for it. It's an extremely, uh, you know, strong and durable material. It's extremely cheap. And uh, we'd be in a bad spot if we didn't have it. Yeah, I think it's important to realize that we use more concrete today than all other materials put together. So, uh, you know, Jason talked a bit about replacing wood, and many people think we could go back to wood. But, um, you know, the amount of wood we use today is about 15% of the amount of concrete. 
And it's been calculated that if you wanted to replace just one quarter of the amount of concrete with wood, you would have to plant new forest one and a half times the size of India. So I think it doesn't take a genius to work out that that is just not feasible in our modern world. So we don't have anything to replace it with. And even on an environmental basis, it wouldn't be desirable because although we hear so much of this headline figure of 8% CO2, that's yeah. only related to the enormous volume. And intrinsically, it is quite a, it is a low energy and low CO2 material. Oren, mm. have you got any, any reflections on the, on the, as it were, the, the step function and civilizational capacity that concrete provides? So on the question of um, could we do without concrete or how much concrete we could replace, um, the discussion is often centered around wood. Uh, something I wondered is because we could ask like how by how much could we scale uh, global wood production in order to attempt to replace as much concrete as possible if we assume that wood is a um, more sustainable material uh, and you have caveats around that. Uh, and if you look into climate models, and um, especially ones that are focused on what's called natural climate solutions, um, that are trying to um, to see what you would you would need to restore in terms of ecosystems to uh, effectively store uh, carbon in them, and what that would imply for agriculture and wood production. In general, those models actually do not lead to a higher global wood production. Uh, some of them actually lead to an intensification of the global wood production, which means you have to produce the same amount with less land. Mm -hmm. So it's definitely not obvious that we could uh, scale up wood production in a sustainable manner in, a, in an attempt to displace uh, even 10 or 20% of global concrete. If I can... Mm. We actually have another episode in this series, which is... Sorry, I was going to say, but just just one second, Jason. There's another episode in this series precisely on timber construction. I mean, it's, it's not timber infrastructure; it's timber construction, mass timber, and and we cover a lot of those issues, forestry and and construction techniques and so forth. I, I will have a follow up on that, but I'll just you know suggest to listeners and to and to yourself uh, that you check out that episode because it matches pretty much what you say. I think it's a little bit more sort of positive, but it definitely implies it, it gives clarity on what the actual opportunity for at least the the building construction part of timber is we didn't talk about infrastructure in general jason you uh, yeah so if i could just add a little bit of, of broader uh perspective you know one of the big themes of industrial progress in the late 19th and early 20th century was uh, moving away from very limited biomaterials to much more abundant uh and and cheaper uh mineral sources for our materials uh you know biomaterials when, when you put it that way they sound sort of futuristic and quote unquote green but they're really, they're really an ancient technology. I mean, our hunter-gatherer ancestors, that's basically all they used. They had plants and, and, and animal parts and, you know, some, some rocks and dirt. That was what they, they made things out of. Uh, in, the, mm. in the 19th century, mm. you know, what we found was that uh, those technologies were unsustainable. And in the sense of what they could not sustain was uh, industrial growth, the growth in population and the growth in wealth. And uh, it's because bio biomaterials are actually very limited and they're replaced very slowly, right? It takes decades to grow a tree. So uh, what we did in many areas, we moved away from using um, whale oil, for instance, and we moved to using uh, kerosene for lighting and then, of course, to electricity. 
we moved away from using, uh, you know, elephant tusks uh, for ivory and, and tortoise shell for combs, and we created plastic instead, which is based on, uh, you know, again, sort of mineral feedstocks. And so there's a similar thing, I think, with moving away from wood for a building material. So I'm always a little, um, you know, sort of wondering where people are coming from when they propose that the way forward is actually essentially to kind of roll back to, uh, you know, a, a kind of 19th century and before approach where somehow everything is going to come from plants and animals. Now, that doesn't mean that we couldn't, you know, there isn't some way that we could uh, possibly use 21st century technologies to actually make that viable. Um, you know, but uh, but generally, there's a pretty good reason that we switch to mineral sources, and uh, you know, we should just be a little suspicious of, of anything that says that we can, you know, somehow kind of roll back the clock that way. Mm. I mean, I'll, we I'll weave this in a little bit more. I mean, the um, the, uh, the 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 dynamic that I'm part of, which I think is underexplored, and and um, well, I'm not as I'll ask you, you know, I ask you to comment on 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 what you think of you think its capacity is. I mean, I think a lot of there's a lot of opportunity in 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 as it were advanced structural engineering to to look at material properties as themselves targets of sort of engineering advance. So, for example, um, you know, you talked about the tensile properties. I mean, the, the, as it were, the lacking tensile properties of concrete in its in its raw form before it's reinforced with steel. I mean, you know, one of the engineering, I mean, innovators. His his work hasn't been really used that much, or it's more like visionaries in the construction space as Buckminster Fuller. And Buckminster Fuller basically pioneered, insofar as he did, innovate um, tensile structures. Right. So his um, geodesic domes are essentially tensile structures um and and certainly the maths or the pseudo maths that he invented the dynamaxian theories are basically around mainly around um you know the opportunities of of tensile structures and i think that that's something that does come from nature in a way that hasn't been explored yet which is um structural properties as opposed to material properties uh certainly if you look at timber construction the uh the nature of wood it's, it's much less isomorphic than it's much less homogeneous in its unit form than concrete and so it does have these cumulative i mean in the episode we actually talk about this these cumulative structural properties that come out of its material nature uh, that actually you know it doesn't doesn't matter whether it's you know organic or not it's just it has a structural property that is not present in in concrete and my so to translate that into a question maybe start with you karen do you think that there are engineering advances in the deployment of concrete that could make its use more efficient. Because right now, pouring concrete is frankly pretty unsophisticated. I mean, you can engineer, um, you know, an, an, a, a structural element in obviously a in mathematically interesting way, but physically, it's still an isomorphic substance applied in a in a more potentially more structurally you know sophisticated way. But is there mass computation, some kind of science of engineering that could be applied to make concrete deployment more efficient? Well, the answer is certainly yes. I mean, even taking the uh, the structures we have today, there's a lot of opportunity for saving material, um, mainly by connecting up the different processes of the specification, design, building, etc. Uh, calculations have shown we can easily, just using existing technology, save you know figure like ten, twenty percent of material. And then, there, of course, are the different uh, forms. But I would be cautious about saying we can go to tensile structures because, you know, I think basically 
um, the way we live is in kind of squarish rooms. And, you know, when you have a big dome, <laughs> um, you don't, you know, it's not necessarily that you're going to use the space in that dome structure very efficiently for, uh, for lots of people living together. So I think we shouldn't get too carried away with thinking of, you know, completely radical forms. Um, but even with what we've got, there's still a lot of room for progress. That's true. I'll come to you just one, in one second, Jason. I just have to kind of st stick up for what I was implying. I wasn't implying that um, what I was actually implying was that, was that tensile that, that tensile structures are an example of engineering as, as, a, as applied to structures that have a different mathematical approach than compressive structures. And actually, in relation to tensile structures, one of the reasons I'm, I'm sort of, I was a bit, I'm, I am a bit, and you might have sensed that antagonistic to Buckminster Fuller is that the visionary aspect of it, such as what spaces we live in, is a little bit too much. But actually, tensile structures can be used for all sorts of purposes, and you can have perfectly rectilinear structures with, which are engineered using primarily sort of tensile engineering. But um, well, that's all what was going basically is, you know, can we use advanced engineering concepts to deploy concrete more efficiently? So I'll, I'll, I'll put that question to you, Jason. Do you have a sense of that or is that not part of your sort of focus? In other words, not replacing material itself, but replacing the kind of evolving the, the, the engineering sophistication of how it's deployed to, to achieve some kind of efficiency benefit. No, I'll defer to Karen and, and Irvin on this one. I have not come across anything in my research so far, but I haven't looked in that question specifically. What do you reckon, Owen? Uh, on this, I would say that you you have two sides to the question of how we could use concrete uh, differently or more efficiently. You have what you can do uh, with the existing processes uh, by with better communication. And so the examples I'm going to give, I'm actually taking directly from um, a work from the EPFL and uh, on which Karen participated. Um, but the, the, they made estimates that if you have better specifications of different types of concrete within the same structure, um, but depending on where you use it, you're not going to need the same resistance. And generally, uh, um, more resistant concrete applies more cement, which applies, for instance, uh, more emissions and also higher costs. So if you have this more detailed specification, you can actually uh, improve your use of it. Same thing if you specify uh, a different concrete to use in reinforced concrete versus in the foundation. Uh, this is um, a gain. On the other side, you have also the more uh, technological advancements that you can have. Um, you have there's, I've seen that in some cases, um, there is room for improvement in the formulations of concrete. And some are doing uh, like mathematical optimization work uh, and sometimes even leveraging the advances in uh, deep learning on this. And they have achieved, I've seen uh, like uh, results in certain formulations of up to like 20% less cement for the same resistance achieved. Mm -hmm. And even further than that, uh, there's been some work around um, the question of 3D printing and whether it can help or not. But for, uh, in some cases, um, I've seen structural um, structural elements. So basically, you get the same structural element, but the inside is filled using a more complex pattern uh, that is 3D printed that can achieve the same structural property with 30 or 40% less concrete. Uh, I, I'd like to just come in there because I think there's a lot of uh, fallacies behind this 3D printing. Uh, the most efficient way you can cut down the amount of cement 
is to optimize how much aggregates you use. The more aggregates you use, the less cement you use. And um, the, figure, the sa potential savings are enormous. You can reduce the amount of cement you need to use by easily by half. And the fallacy of 3D printing is because you have to squeeze this material out through some kind of nozzle, then you can't use such big aggregates. And the consequence of that is you have to use a lot more cement. So you may be able to build structures with less concrete, but that concrete you have probably contains three or four times as much cement as, not, as better optimized concrete. So we have to be careful in, um, you know, thinking that we should go to do everything in 3D printing. Yes, well, so, uh, uh, actually, just to add on this, but uh, it's a really, really good point because one of the um, non-intuitive questions uh, here is that trying to minimize the amount of concrete, which is generally the approach that is taken, is not necessarily synonymous with minimizing the amount of uh, cement that is used, which is generally what you're aiming for, because that's where you have all the CO2 emissions and all the costs. And uh, uh, on this, like, I think even from the structural engineer's perspective, from every, everything I've heard, generally the approach, uh, the, when you are trying to, for instance, improve the environmental footprint of your building with the concrete, is you try to minimize the amount of concrete. And sometimes that leads to uh, high, uh, formulations with higher cement content. And the result of this, when you actually try to model, um, is not obvious. Interesting. So we'll actually revisit this a bit more in, in, in a while. I mean, just to kind of round up a little bit on the, on this on this point. I mean, the um, the, the you know the, the best examples I think of, of of the of innovation in tensile structures that anyone will see on a daily basis at modern airports. Like most, not most, but a lot of modern airports are basically canopy structures, and you can see the the tensile um, kind of engineering and these massive steel pylons that are attached to kind of you know these concrete footings and it gives you a sense of you know how you can engineer without you know relying on compressive structures and i think that some parts of that form of engineering where you have very sophisticated and so like modern like you know stadiums have you know a fair amount of, of, of tensile kind of engineering like canopy roofs and so forth uh, are, are based on that and, and whether we can use those kinds of lattice structures or connection structures um, possibly, you know, it, through the reinforcement model and so forth is an interesting question. I don't think it's very well explored. It's certainly not on the design side, the engineering of, of steel and, and um, of steel structures using that, of the, those engineering approaches is relatively well explored, but the, the role of concrete in that, it kind of overlaps with fabrication. And there's another piece of it, which is potentially, and it comes a little bit to what you're suggesting around, you know, on-site versus off-site construction. I mean, there's definitely a tension around the efficiency potential in terms of um, uh, prefabricated elements, modular elements, concrete cassette elements that can be snapped together. But then the issue is, while they might be produced more efficiently with whether they can achieve the same structural properties on site uh, as opposed to concrete poured on site. There's another question around, so there's lots of kind of complexities around design versus you know, production efficiency. Um, we'll come back to more of those in, in, a, in a little bit. Let's just kind of drill out the, the kind of core nub of um, the issue in, in, insofar as the public discourse is concerned right now. And we'll go through it step by step. What is the essential chemical physical activity that takes place that that requires resources so let's just step through it you know in in, in kind of chemical and physical terms um 
maybe start again with you, Jason, because you, you're you know very familiar with this sort of pedagogic framing of the issues. What is going on when we make a concrete thing? I mean, step by step, what is the energy, what are the resources, and what is the baseline profile? We'll go, Jason, then you, Owen, and then and then you, Karen. Yeah, sure. Um, I, I probably know the least about this, but maybe I can escape the curse of knowledge and and uh, and articulate it for a general audience. Um, the you know the essence of making cement is the kilning of limestone. So um, limestone is a you know a rock that forms naturally, um, typically from sort of crushed seashells or something like that that have been under you know pressure for uh, you know who know for for eons maybe millions of years, and uh, uh, the the essential chemical element of this is calcium carbonate, which is CaCO3, and so then um, what we do is we essentially crush it and burn it. Um, and when we, uh, so it's in a kiln, uh, and when we do that, uh, the calcium carbonate releases CO2 and then uh, leaves behind calcium oxide, which is just Ca, uh, CaO. And so uh, it is this uh, calcium oxide that's kind of the essential element in um, cement. Uh, and so you that's what you can mix with water and then, you know, essentially pour into a mold. Uh, in modern formulations, other ingredients uh, are sort of, sorry, yeah, go I ahead. I have there. to come in because I'm sorry, this is, this is completely chemically incorrect because that's what <laughs> right. you uh, Modern cement, that calcium oxide, then becomes combined with silicates. And so you end up with calcium silicates. And that's what really reacts with the water. Uh, in fact, if you ended up with calcium oxide, you'd have a complete disaster because it expands and, 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 and can give you massive problems. So... You know, the whole point of the transition from this ancient lime technology to modern cements was the higher temperatures allow that calcium oxide then to form new compounds with silicate and, uh, and also aluminate and iron. And uh, those compounds have this really quite magical property that, first of all, they dissolve in water, but then they form new combinations between the elements that precipitate these new solids, which we call hydrates, which are then the glue that holds the whole thing together. And because in this chemical reaction, you actually combine the water, the water becomes combined in these new solids, you get an increase in solid volume. So you basically fill in the spaces that were originally between the, uh, the cement grains. So sorry to come in. No, but, not at all. Um, Aaron, you filled in, you you filled in the modern... The, uh, the, the yeah. precise definition. Uh, yeah, the, 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 the lime cycle so, that I so described just, is sort just, of the just, ancient uh, Gobekli Tepe version of, uh, of this. And Karen's absolutely right that ever since the Romans, essentially, right. we've been using a different formula that, that has a different uh, uh, series of chemical reactions. But essentially what you're laying out, right, is to, is to make, technically make uh, concrete, you need to have a limestone input, you need to have a heat input to create uh, the calcium oxide at, in, in terms of the kind of classic cementing process. And then you can be more sophisticated in building out your cement and concrete mix. That's the, the framework, roughly speaking. Would you both agree with that? Yeah, but uh, as I said, it's not only limestone. You have to have the clay there. Sure. Uh, that's very important. Right. So, Erwin, um, just give us the a first pass in terms of the environmental profile of, of whether, the, you know, the, 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 the pre-Roman or the post-Roman process. 
So the generally the main issue with concrete is uh, so the, actually Karen gave the figure earlier. Um, it's estimated that the cement and concrete industries are responsible for around seven to eight percent of global greenhouse gas emissions today, mm. um, and generally that's the the main issue. Uh, the reason for this, uh, it actually actually all those emissions come from nearly a single step, at least the vast majority of them, and they come from uh, from this reaction we just described. So it comes from the production of clinker, which is the binding agent in cement. Uh, that is obtained uh, through this calcination of limestone and clay. Yeah. And it's exactly... Wait, so, the... so, so is clinker calcium yes. oxide or is it something else? No, it's calcium silicates. All right. Okay. So, so, so the most important components of, um, of clinker is what's called tricalcium silicate, which is a, a combination of calcium oxide and silicon dioxide. Right. And so the, uh, to continue on this, the issue there is um, with basically the, even with the ancient reaction that Jason described, you have CO2 emissions that are part of the chemical reaction itself. So even if you are considering the fact that we are taking rock and heating it up to 1500 degrees to get this, which requires a lot of energy, and so you burn a lot of fuel to get there, uh, actually, those fuels only represent well, around, let's say, one third of the emissions associated with the production of clinker and cement. Uh, the two thirds, uh, the remaining two thirds, basically, are uh, associated with the process emissions, which are um, which are the CO two emissions that come from the chemical reaction, and those are especially hard to reduce because, as we mentioned before, there is no real alternative. So even if you switch to completely, I don't know, hydrogen biomass fuels, um, you only re you only solve one third of the yeah, problem. To put this in some perspective, if we if we think about uh, if we think about decarbonizing energy, for instance, there's no sort of fundamental reason why carbon mm -hmm. has to be involved in energy, right? Um, we have uh, carbon-free energy sources, um, you know, such as solar and nuclear. There's uh, there, there's nothing kind of you know, it's energy is energy. It has nothing to do with carbon itself. Uh, if we look at something like steel, now it becomes more difficult because carbon is actually involved in a chemical reaction uh, in the smelting of iron. Right? So iron, you get uh, you get iron ore out of the ground. It's iron mm -hmm. oxide, right? Um, iron mixed with with um, with oxygen atoms. You need to strip away the oxygen atoms to get the pure elemental iron. And today we do that using carbon fuel. The carbon actually uh, uh, the carbon atoms actually snatch the oxygen atoms away from the ore and kind of take it away, and that's where the CO two comes from. But that, at least theoretically, and I believe in some experimental yeah. setups, you can do you could do with hydrogen. Um, you know, hydrogen could be the element to take away the oxygen, mm -hmm. and then you would get water vapor instead of CO two. Um, but with limestone, the challenge is that the mm -hmm. CO two is literally in the limestone, right? Again, that calcium carbonate is CaCO three. The CO two is literally a part, you know, a subset of that mm -hmm. uh, of that molecule, and so and you need to remove it in order to get uh, cement, mm -hmm. and so there's sort of an uh, uh, you know, an inevitable, um, you know, CO2 uh, as, as a waste product of this process. It's inherent in the chemistry. Mm. Okay, Karen, so I'm passing the ball to, I'm passing the ball to you, Karen. So in, in terms of, because you've done some of it already, you've done some of the cleanup and, and kind of clarification yeah. on the, on the technical process. Now, give us your frame on the, on the, on the, on the resource and environmental profile of the basics of, of cement and concrete. Would you, how would you comment on what Erwin said or add anything else? 
Well, I think, uh, you know, the basics have already been well explained is this uh, loss of uh, CO2 from the limestone. But it's important people realize that we don't have an alternative to that because um, we have to realize that the 98% um, of the Earth's crust is made up of just eight elements, uh, which are silicon, oxygen, silicon, aluminum, iron, calcium, sodium, potassium, magnesium. And when we look at the hydraulic properties, that's to say whether these can set and make cements, we find that the only things that we can really use are in this system of uh, calcium oxide, which comes from limestone and silica and alumina. And we know all the different compounds that can form in this um, system. And there are some other um, materials that can make cements, but we don't have the raw materials to make those in the quantities needed. So what we can do, though, of course, is to replace a lot of this clinker by other materials. And that's a very viable and successful strategy that can lead to CO2 reductions and has a lot further potential to go in the future. So we'll come to that because that, that's, I think, the, you know, the nub of it. But just to kind of to kind of clarify and frame this a bit, I mean, what I what you, you've done this brilliantly and I'm very happy about this. I think the entire environmental movement and the policy and public debate around sustainability and climate has to kind of bite on these two big facts, which is we need concrete and it is uh, a uh, <laughs> foundation. I keep coming back to that for modern civilization. Um, and we're going to have to deal with the carbon emissions um, baked in to current concrete and cementiferous processes. And I think that's, I mean, certainly has been for me a kind of, you know, wake up call that there are these framing limits to how much we can assume society can adapt or change or innovate or, or you know, or, um, you know, revolutionize itself on ethical or creative terms. There's just some hard facts that we have to navigate around. But also that clarifies the status of the problem right here is what we have, where we, where we should put our, our focus. And I think you've, you know, you, you've all put, you know, put that in, in very stark um, in clear terms, just to kind of, you know, to, to kind of drill out a few more pieces so we can kind of knock down the straw man, as it were, one by one. So if the um, carbon intensity of clinker production is a hard one, which we'll come on to in just one second, Karen, to kind of, you know, what the, what the adaptation or technical potential around that is, um, just to kind of knock, knock these out, is um, the mining of limestone and clay and other inputs, whether you know silicates or any other of the inputs that you described uh, and mentioned, Erwin, it, what is the environmental impact of that? Is it particularly pollu polluting mining? Is it particularly disruptive of ecosystems? What is the, the footprint of just the physical inputs of, of, of concrete and cement? Maybe start with you, Jason. Uh, once again, I'll defer to Karen and Irwin on this one. I haven't researched the numbers here. Do you have a sense of that, Karen? Yeah, I mean, you know, uh, what's good about most of these materials, limestone and uh, clay, is they form very close to the surface. So um, they can be extracted by quarrying. You don't need any deep mining, which is uh, which is one good thing. Um, of course, then, um, you know, you extract them and you have to eventually when they've been extracted, then it's very important that the quarry is put back in the original state. 
and mm. uh, this now is being done. I mean, maybe it wasn't done in the past, but I think now in, you know, certainly in Europe and North America, there is the legislation in place and also the awareness by the companies that they need to do this. I think we have to be aware that, you know, the, the amount of material we need to quarry to make this concrete is one of the least amount of materials we could use to get what we want in the end, which is, um, which is um, you know, construction. Just to give an example, um, we have a cement factory close to uh, Lausanne here, um, and um, they've been using this, you know, small little hill of limestone for the last hundred years, and they've probably sort of eaten away about one tenth of this little hill in a hundred years. Um, so I'm not to say that, you know, we would love to have a, a kind of, you know, we, we would love to have a process that caused absolutely no damage. But um, given that we want to construct houses, then I think concrete is one of the least damaging ways to do this. And, mm. and companies now are making sure that they, um, they put the things back to a good state afterwards. What, what, what is the out of curiosity? I mean, I, I should actually know this, but what are the main mining techniques? Is it strip mining? I mean, how disruptive of a landscape is limestone or and, and clay mining, or are they all different techniques? I wouldn't call it strip mining. It's not like mining for iron ore. I mean, generally, you have a kind of, you know, as I say, if you imagine a little quarry, hill, yeah. and then you're taking away, you know, uh, sections of that hill. Um, oh. If you look around you, you're probably most people will be quite close to a cement plant and, and they can see this. And the fact they haven't noticed it all that much <laughs> up to now kind of does give you an indication that it's, it's not as bad as it could be. I'm not saying it's perfect, but um, it, 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 it's, it's not a disaster. One of the notable features, I mean, and correct me if I'm wrong here, of, of cement production is that, that, you know, I mean, the two physically most uh, dominant constituents well, so I mean, so correct me if I'm wrong. So, whether, so limestone, uh, so 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 clean, so limestone, clay, and then the aggregates are all in principle non-toxic, right? So, what we're mining here does not itself, um, I mean, other than landscape disruption and other sort of you know sort of uh, effluent, it's not toxic. Is that yeah, correct? That's exactly correct, and I think it's very very important. You know, you're forming. You, you, you know, you're taking rocks and you're in the end reforming rocks. So there's, yes. you know, it's just the same stuff as we have all around us. I do, I do think that, I mean, that is actually a big insight because one of the reasons for doing this series is to try to get the, the, the two poles of the environmental discourse right now, one of which is highly radicalized around changing industrial civilization. One I think is sometimes too glib about, you know, efficiency of the market and so forth. I, I'd like there to be a technical baseline to whatever a conversation continues. And this is one of those, which is that we just aren't dealing with, I mean, ironically, we're not dealing with modern materials, right? These are eternally <laughs> available substrates that we've always had around us and have always used in some form. Would you agree with that, Jason? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I do think that, um, you know, the, the conversation on the sort of more radical uh, side, the essentially the sort of degrowth, roll back the clock is, uh, is really just missing some basic industrial literacy like a, you know, a basic understanding of what what is necessary to kind of keep the modern world running, what gives us a standard of living, and you know what were the ways in which life was different, which in which uh, you know really life was was much more difficult and and harder for the vast majority of people. 
you know, in the in the early 1800s, the majority of the population of the world, over 90 percent of people, you know, lived on about uh, the equivalent modern equivalent of two dollars a day. Uh, today, that would be considered that is considered extreme mm -hmm. poverty. And so we've taken, uh, you know, kind of the majority of the world out of extreme poverty in the last couple hundred years, and we did it through industrialization. And so, um, you know, mm. we th there is no going back. Mm. Uh, going back would be, frankly, a moral disaster. Mm. We have to find ways to go forward. And you know, if mm. there are um, if there are challenges of our current technologies, let's meet them. But you know, I think I think we meet them by rolling forward with more progress rather than, uh, you know, by trying to roll back as the degrowth movement is trying to do. One of the things that is actually important to me about about the role of concrete in in civilization and it's it's lost in in the debate around the the physical intensity of of construction, which and what we've talked about so far, essentially kind of uh, infrastructure uh, load bearing infrastructure in society, whether it's you know bridges or roads or buildings or dams. Actually, you know the role of concrete in sanitation is vast. Um, because the first sanitation infrastructures, if I'm not incorrect, were basically brick infrastructures. I mean, I'm talking London rather than ancient Rome, right? The first pub public sanitation infrastructures were brick and they leaked, right? So whether it's carrying fresh water or it's carrying sewage, it's just not good enough. Um, and so to have concrete sanitation, which is not load bearing, it's just a, you know, a, 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 it's like a, a social and health function of society. It's vast because sanitation is one of the great breakthroughs of civilization. It's, you know, it's at least as, 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 as impactful in, 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 in ma making a society viable. Yeah, if we don't want to go back to the days of uh, cholera outbreaks, um, it's pretty important that we don't allow our sewage to leak into our drinking water. Right. I agree with that. Right. Right, and that and that's important because it, that's not a structural thing, right? It's just it's I mean, it's not infrastructural. It's not it's not load bearing, right? So it's structural and infrastructural, but it doesn't bear weight. It's a it's a, it's a, for like a social infrastructure. Um, so just on the technical piece, to, just so we've got it all out of the way. Um, I mean, just on the energy piece, I mean, I'll just get, get that out of the way. Basically, exactly as you said, Jason, we can in principle decarbonize energy, right? So the actual energy that goes into uh, um, concrete and and cement production. Is itself an entirely separate question from the environmental performance of the of the concrete and cement process itself. So we'll just push push that aside onto the energy debate, which will come up later in the in the in the series. On the clinker piece, right, which is what we have to do to get the um, you know the the cement uh, into the into the concrete production. You were mentioning, Karen, that there are some technical innovations there. What are they? I mean, how advanced can how far can we get from this necessary release of carbon dioxide from from calcium trioxide yes well this is uh, you know the very important uh, subject of su materials that can partially substitute for clinker so you can't really do away with clinker entirely but you can substitute a large part of it and what we've been using for several decades now are particularly two materials which is uh, blast furnace slag which is a byproduct of producing iron and fly ash, which is what you get from burning coal to produce electricity. So uh, slag, for example, you could substitute up to 95% of clinker with slag and still get a reasonable concrete. But the issue is worldwide, we only have 8% of slag compared to cement. 
and that amount is going down and it's going to continue to go down. I think someone mentioned earlier that we could do this process of making iron with hydrogen instead of um, instead of carbon. And that would um, that would mean we had no slag. And similarly, fly ash, which comes from burning coal. Well, one of the first things we have to do in this global warming issue is stop burning coal. So, you know, both of these materials are only about 15% of cement production today, and that will decrease quite dramatically in the future. So the question is, what else can we use? And, you know, this is really where we've been working in my laboratory. Uh, we've gone to uh, clay, which you can take clay on its own and just uh, calcine it, that's to say heat it up to about 800 degrees um, by itself. And then you have a very active uh, material and um, in fact, then you can take that calcine clay, you can take some of the raw limestone, which still has its CO2 uh, combined, and you can easily substitute more than half the clinker while obtaining the same, uh, the same strength and some properties are actually uh, dramatically improved. So this is, you know, the new uh, formulation we call LC3, limestone calcine clay cement. Um, which is starting to be uh, taken up by the industry. And we calculate that this can have the potential to save more than 400 billion, million tons a year of CO2 worldwide. So just to be super specific, uh, limestone calcinated clay, LC3, can reduce carbon dioxide emissions by, by how much in the, in the, in the, in the concrete process? Yeah, so it depends what you're comparing with, but if you compare it to the standard sort of what we call ordinary port and cement, you can save 40% of CO2. If you compare it to some of the substitute materials we've got today, like with fly ash, then you can still save between 10 and 20%. Um, but the pro problem is we haven't, you know, we're running out of this material like fly ash. So where we have to go in the future is to start using much more of this calcine clay and uh, luckily, the kind of clays we need are very abundant worldwide, particularly in those countries where the growth of cement is going to be strongest, like Africa, uh, India, South America. Erin, mm. uh, what, what's your take on, on the overall um, efficiency opportunities in, 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 in clinker substitutes and then specifically uh, uh, calcinate, calcined or calcinated clay? Calcined. <laughs> Calcine, sorry. Yeah. Um, generally, what I'm seeing from uh, inside the industry in terms of the models for the future, how uh, the production of cement and concrete is going to change in the future, kind of comes in two phases. Um, the first phase is the one that we've been talking about, and we can actually get very far in terms of CO2 uh, reductions with this. Which uh, So you have basically what's the general term is going to be clinker substitution where you try to replace clinker with other materials uh lc3 being the calcine clays being one of the uh basically the most prom promising one in terms of deploying it at the scale of the whole industry um with this you also have uh, just to come back very quickly on the topic of energy but one of the big opportunities in the short term is uh, what's called fuel substitution, basically using less fossil fuels and replacing them with either uh, non-organic waste that would have to be dealt with uh, some way or with uh, some kind of biomass and maybe hydrogen in the future. But so this can also um, is also 
quite uh, involves uh, involves quite a lot of work uh, from the cement industry, uh, just because you need to reach high heat with uh, hmm. fuels that are not suited for it, or at least not as well as fossil fuels. Um, but it's doable. You have pl you have plants uh, in Europe today that achieve up to 80 or 90 percent uh, substitution, which means you get less than 20 percent fossil fuels in use. Yeah. That's um, really interesting. I mean, I, I, yeah, on the energy piece, I mean, I, I, I make a lot of, I often talk about the, when I have discussion with, with, with energy people about the quality of energy required, right? And one of the reasons why I say, look, you know, if you want to, to do a full um, costing of the, of the relevance of different, you know, low carbon or, or zero carbon energy sources, you've got to work out what kinds of energy you need to produce. And so the idea that you're using nuclear fuel to generate warm rooms is genuinely a bit odd because warm rooms can mostly be achieved by insulating buildings better um, or things like combined heat and power that produce very low grade heat in the form of you know warm water as a as an off as a as a as a as a, as a uh, byproduct of of some other high energy process and so what you're describing which is actually very interesting and i hadn't kind of processed that is you've got to make sure that you have the correct quality of energy uh, which is one of the reasons why, if I understand you correctly, why concrete production has hooked itself to fossil fuels historically, because it needs a very high heat, right? So you can't just use some byproduct that inherently issues at some lower temperature because you, it just won't work. Is that that's part of your point, right? Yes. So basically, you have the uh, what's called the calorific potential of the fuels. Uh, in the yeah. case of uh, anything that is non-fossil fuel, is generally too low. Um, yeah, exactly. By itself, uh, by itself, it's generally too low to achieve the temperatures required for the Portland cement process. Uh, what's what you generally do, what you do, for instance, when you get, for instance, bi uh, biomass waste that is a, maybe a bit too wet, you actually are going to dry it or uh, and try to basically optimize it so that you can actually achieve that kind of temperature. So you have some processing involved there. Is there any way, right? So this is also so this is for you, Urban, also for you, Karen. Is there any way to reduce the uh, the, the temperature required to 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 create uh, clinker? Is there any way just to radically reduce the temperature requirement? Is there a chemical process, a catalyst, or something one can use? Uh, the basic answer is no, because it's a question of, uh, of thermodynamics. So um, you know, we talked a little bit about the fact that you have to combine the calcium oxide and the silicate, and you end up with this uh, compound called tricalcium silicate, and this only forms above about twelve fifty. So you know that's the thermodynamic limit, and you have to go a little bit higher um, to uh, to have the process happening at a reasonable rate, and um, that's so much more efficient than anything else you can form at lower temperatures. You can form things at lower temperatures, but the benefits you would have from those lower temperatures are way more than offset by the, by the kind right. of yield of this tricalcium silicate in terms of the strength it, it gives and, and the, the rate at which it reacts. Is, is there any viability? I just come up with this idea, so it could be an extremely bad one is there any viability of kind of separating concrete into different quality streams so that you can imagine creating you know lower quality concrete for things that just do not have high high-end structural purposes so it could be roads it could be swimming pools it could be you know sidewalks um is that a viable prop proposition because if let's say there is a way to produce this is very much done right no but i mean this that, is very that, much done i mean it's probably not done to the extent 
be done, but yeah. certainly you don't use the same quality concrete in foundations where you don't need yeah. a very high strength to the concrete you use to build the, you know, a high rise building or something. So, sure. I mean, concrete is a whole range of products that can go from, you know, quite low strength from filling in holes in the road. Yeah extremely high strength for building high-rise buildings so i mean yeah that's very i'm aware of that what I, what I was sort of what i was getting at is is there is there any sense in which that might be an opportunity in innovation purposes to basically create just a, a lower energy lower concrete uh, production stream so there's an innovation of let's say lower temperature clinker that just doesn't produce cement of the same binding force or is that not realistic no, it's much more sensible to produce the same clinker and then substitute a higher quantity of it. Right. So, okay. you know, I said you could substitute, say, half of it with calcine clay and limestone and get the same strength as the reference Portland cement. You could actually substitute, let's say, two thirds of it and mm. have a, what, in fact, in many countries is already called a general use cement and a general use mm. cement is the kind of cement that you and i would have to build something in our garden we don't need a, a a very high performance material there so already on the market you have these materials where actually they've already substituted uh, quite a large part of the clinker with uh, finely ground limestone which which is a very good solution okay so let's 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 start kind of exiting this this little technical kind of like grounding um is there a way, let's start with you, Karen, for uh, concrete and cement production to bind CO2 itself, right? It's separately, it may be a separate chemical process. It may not be a chemical process at all. It just become kind of some kind of gas capture process. Um, but is that in any way realistic? Because one of, one of the routes for uh, carbon sequestration it, um, is uh, mineral capture, right? There's, there's a variety of different techniques that are being proposed. But is anything to do with cement or concrete production itself able to, to contribute to carbon sequestration? Absolutely, certainly. Um, I mean, we talked about we talked a lot about limestone giving off the CO2, and then it can recombine the same roughly the same amount of CO2 eventually. The problem is that most of the concrete we use with reinforcing steel, we don't want that process to occur very fast, because if yeah. it occurs too fast, then we'll get corrosion of the reinforcement. But typically, a concrete will reabsorb somewhere around 20% of that CO2 during its lifetime. And then there are people working on products for things like blocks, which don't have reinforcing steel, where you can uh, push that uh, process further. You can actually now make uh, products where you harden them with CO2, so they almost straight away reabsorb that, that CO2. So there's an awful lot of going on there. And then we can go further because then we can take a demolished concrete and we mm. can um, process that so we can get out the aggregates and reuse the aggregates. But the fine mm. material, which is um, then got a lot of this uncarbonated calcium oxide, this can go back, it can be used to make cement again, or it can be used as an addition material. So all of that CO2 will eventually be reabsorbed, but it's a question of time scale that, you know, we give it mm. almost instantly, and then it may mm. take 50 to 100 years to reabsorb it. And we have to realize that that is a, it's a closed cycle. So there are, 
Unfortunately, there are some startups which are coming out with this brilliant idea, which says, oh, we can use, we can absorb carbon dioxide with calcium oxide. And of course, that, that, that's true. <laughs> um, but if calcium oxide is calcium carbonate in the exactly. first place, yeah, exactly. you can see you've gone around a circle. Now you laugh, but there no, are no, people... People yeah. funding startups to the extent of many b- million, millions, or if not billions of dollars, to to do that kind of thing. Well, so so one of the reasons why I'm laughing actually is because I, I'm I, I probably could have just thought this through myself, but you, you've made it very clear, with, with, and yet in yet another way that concrete is a is a friend of society, and that it that that the that the, um, that the it, that it basically reconstitutes as limestone over time, right? That's kind of the implication: is the carbon dioxide is reabsorbed, and 50 to 100 year timescale is is meaningful in in, in climate terms. I mean, you can plan in 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 those timescales. One of the ironies is that a lot of what's being suggested in timber is the premise that timber sequesters carbon, which just basically isn't true, right? And even so, in, even to the extent that it does sequester carbon, it, it doesn't. It, it will be released as carbon dioxide at some point, right? So the exact inverse is happening in this deployment of structural organic matter: is that it will all rot in the end if it's not growing, and so it's going to go out. So unless you have a uh, you know, a growth and recapture cycle. So you've got a your closed biomass cycle for your structural materials, your wood structural materials. You're going to lose the carbon dioxide once you chop the tree down. And the irony is that you're saying, and you're pointing out that in concrete terms, we're going to get the CO2 back at some point, which is a complete reversal of the presumption in the current debate around structural materials. So that's very good to, yeah. to, to know. Um, uh, so just to just to kind of put a put a put a cap on that. Would you say that it's that that co- the concrete should be considered more explicitly under the heading of sequestering technologies, and 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 would you consider it to be a direct air capture specifically in the heading of of carbon sequestration? Well, yes, because all the concrete around us is absorbing CO two, but it can, as I said before, it can never reabsorb more than it gave out in the first place. And, right. and this is our basic problem that nearly all calcium on Earth is in the form of limestone or calcium carbonate already. And we have very few sources which are, are not already combined with, with CO2. So we don't have a huge potential there for sequestering new material. And, right. um, you know, the, the kind of things people are looking at for sequestering new CO2 are uh, 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 materials like magnesium silicates, um, exactly, yeah. you know, and uh, and that I think is, is quite interesting, but it's not problem free because there are a lot of technical issues. Um, mm-hmm. Magnesium silicates, you know, are not so widely distributed on earth. And, um, you know, people have been trying to make cements out of them, but they don't work very well as cements to, to say the least. Um, mm. So maybe they just have to sequester the CO two and and then you do something with them like put them in the sea or or I don't know what. Let, let, let me just let me just ask you, Karen, to to finish the point on 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 recovery of of concrete. How much can it be fully? Uh, in the jargon, upcycled, because the history of, of recycling of I mean, So, for example, in a lot of the sustainability debate in the construction sector on on recycling and just sustainability in general, it, it you know it gives you points in different scoring systems to recycle your concrete 
as road aggregate, which is basically just crushed rocks that goes under the tarmac surface, roughly speaking. And that's not really recycling, that's downcycling. And it's not, it doesn't really count as true recycling. But you're talking about actual recovery of the materials. How, how far is that advanced? How far can it go? Well, it's very far advanced. It depends on the country. You know, countries, uh, you know, which are quite dense, like the Netherlands, they recycle 100% of their, of their concrete. In Switzerland, most of the concrete is recycled into new concrete again. Uh, the issue has been in the past is because the aggregates have uh, rough surfaces, because you can't get off all the old cement, then that mm. means that you have to put more cement into the new concrete. And that extra use of cement can cancel out the CO2 savings mm. of reusing the aggregates. But we mm. do have new technologies starting to come on stream, which can do a much better job of separating out the aggregates. So I think we're going to see much better reuse in concrete. And, and then if we go to road base, well, if you stop the road base using virgin aggregates, mm. then, it, then you're still you still have a, a, a net gain because you're stopping mm. the, the quarrying for those virgin aggregates. So I don't think we should see that, what people call downside uh, cycling so negatively. And, mm. you know, we have to realize that upcycling generally means we have to put more energy into the system. Right. I mean, just is it, is it, is it, is it a chemical process? Is it a mechanical process? What is the main sort of technical, like, uh, enabler in, in concrete recycling? Well, um, it's it, it's mainly sort of mechanical. You have to have you know things like smart crushers, which can yeah. better separate the the aggregates from the cement paste. And 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 there's really good advances being made on those fronts. Um, there are also sort of some kind of chemical treatments that can make the cement kind of fall off the aggregates which are, um, you know, uh, really quite interesting and, and don't mm. use anything toxic or anything like that. So I think we're going to see a huge amount of progress in that area in the coming years. Does the, does the cement itself need to be go, go through a cementiferous process again? Presumably it does, right? But... Uh, well, it can do. You can, I mean, that's the easiest way you can reuse it. You can put it into a cement kiln as a raw material. And, yeah. and there, if some of it, is is not recarbonated that reduces the co2 emissions for producing the new cement uh, you can okay. also use it as one of you, people are starting to look at using it as one of these substitute materials which mm. seems also to be quite uh quite interesting from a technical point of view mm. i mean Aaron, have you got any more comments on on sort of technical uh capabilities for reusing recycling concrete once it's been deployed out in the field or a carbon capture. Um, one of the things that I find uh, interesting about the conception of concrete uh, for people that are concerned about the environment and more specifically about climate is some of them actually turn around, as you mentioned, and are seeing concrete uh, or building materials in general as a possible way to basically use CO2. If you capture CO2 at industrial plants or from the atmosphere, you kind of have to put it somewhere. And some say, oh, but you know, uh, as mentioned, CaO plus CO2 the, uh, gives, uh, gives us uh, CaCO3, which we, we, we went through the problems. However, uh, if you look at the future of the cement industry, uh, as I was mentioning before, we, um, and I, I didn't finish on this, uh, there's kind of two phases. There's the first phase of uh, everything we talked about with clinker substitution, fuel substitution, 
more efficient use of concrete. And this is going to carry out from now until um, in the long future, but it's going to give us, um, the goal is that it gives us the re emissions reductions that we need to achieve by, let's say, 2030, 2040. But after that comes the, the, thing, the question of carbon capture, uh, because basically, as we mentioned, due to the chemical process, we can't reach zero emissions for the cement and concrete production without doing carbon capture by itself. So due to various pressures, especially regulatory pressures, it's very likely that a significant portion of the industry moves to carbon capture, or at least that's what they're aiming to do right now. But the thing is, if that happens and we let's assume the CO2 that is captured is stored somewhere, we're not going to worry about this. What happens is that you end up with concrete that is uh, actually very low carbon and that ends up reabsorbing CO2 from the atmosphere and possibly reabsorbing more than was used to produce it or than was emitted to produce it, mm -hmm. which is actually, it's kind of far into the future and you have lots of uncertainties around this. L let's mm -hmm. be very clear. Uh, but I think it's an interesting perspective because you kind of can shift from one of the hardest to decarbonize and most polluting industries today uh, to possibly a strong solution for cleaning up the atmosphere by itself okay but so but, so, but just to just to clarify are you saying that that just to be super specific are you saying that an innovation that is evolving in in concrete is that it can become a net a net sequesterer of carbon or are we going to max out at the at the carbon that was absorbed in the clinker process it uh, if you capture the carbon that comes out of the cement kiln and yeah. then you hand it off to someone to store in the geological storage somewhere yeah uh, then uh, depending on like on everything else on the whole process, but you can actually you could actually reach net negative. Well, yeah, but you're assuming another technology that's sequestering it somewhere else. The, the production carbon. Yes, yes, that's 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 fair. That's a major problem from the for the industry because, <laughs> yeah. like right now, the perspective from the industry is they are going to have to do carbon capture and they're going to have to yeah. do something with the CO two. But well, uh, I mean, Karen, I think you're, 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 you've put the baseline down. I mean, I, I hear you on that, and that's and that's a helpful perspective. I think Karen, you're pointing out the baseline, which is that there is a there's a there's an underlying yeah. math here that the energy and the carbon is going to come from somewhere and go somewhere, right? Um, and it's pretty good to be to be clear about that. Um, so. Um, just to kind of put a put a put a put a, a full stop on this, it, it, it seems like you know there is a lot of potential for um, recycling of, of concrete of concrete to at least recapture its own or or some other um, carbon dioxide, uh, and that's uh, valuable. It will be it will, it will kind of max out at the carbon that was originally embedded in the in the limestone, um, and it's a low toxics material. That seems to me a very good framing of the sustainability basics of of um of concrete i mean we just got to know these things is that right yeah i think it's extremely important that people understand that because otherwise you get completely um perverse decisions being being made you know i mean i had a, a, a an interesting debate with a um environmentalist um a couple of years ago you know and i who, was who was that trying to explain how efficient sorry, who, sorry who, who was that who was that Karen oh I wouldn't I shouldn't mention names but um <laughs> okay. you know basically um you know I was saying well you know cement and concrete are extremely efficient 
and um, he, he, he wouldn't see this argument. And then I turned around, I said, well, what would you uh, build? What would you use to house people? And he said, bamboo. And I said, you know, I mean, <laughs> I think uh, Jason said it very well earlier, these materials aren't available in the quantities we need. And can you imagine living in the middle of winter in a house built purely of bamboo? You know, I think we've I think we have to keep our feet on the ground. And, um, you know, if we really put together all the technologies that were in our grasp of, you know, making the clinker as efficiently as we can, of substituting as much of the clinker with other materials as we can, of minimizing the amount of cement we use in concrete, minimizing the amount of concrete we use in structures, and then recycling at the end, I think we can, if we string these together, come up with really substantial reductions, maybe up to something like 80%. And mm. then of course, we still have a small amount that has to go to carbon capture and storage, but carbon capture and storage is always gonna be expensive. And, mm. and, and you know we're gonna bring down that cost a lot if we do the other things we can do, but it's a question mm. of getting all the different actors involved. And mm. you know, up to now, the pressure's just been on people making cement. I think mm. now we need, we need to bring in you know, the people who make the concrete and the people who build the buildings as well, because unless we go right the way down this chain, uh, we won't be able to achieve uh, the potential reductions we can. Okay, so I've got so I've got one last question, which I'll come to, which is basically then the social and the governance dimension. In other words, what does society do about these things? But I just want to kind of round off this this the the, the sort of technical innovation um, theme with you, Jason. And it's a tough question, which I think you'll wriggle on, but I'm going to poke you a bit at it. Why is investment so incredibly bad at helping with precisely the things that Karen has just described? All right, and what I mean by that is as follows: we have right now a massive upshift in so-called ESG investment in the venture capital sector, all right? And it's all fucking shit. What I mean by that is the people that promote it don't know any of these things. And it shocks me, right? You have, you know, very, very famous leaders of, of venture capital investment, Paul Gray, I'm talking about forest-based sequestration using techniques that, were 20 years out, that are 20 years out of date. That's the pinnacle of insight from the market at the VCN right now. What's gone wrong? Because you're the boss of progress. <laughs> You can see I'm being provocative, so you can shoot back. Why are VCs and why is the investment community so incredibly clumsy about these things? Because what we're talking about is not technically very advanced, right? Most of this technically hasn't advanced that much. It's not like microprocessors. So where where is the money, right? Why aren't billions of dollars, maybe they are, maybe Karen's got billions of dollars flowing into our department today, but no. I think there should be. Where is that money? It must, what's gone wrong? Uh, yeah, that's a tough one. Um, I mean, Paul Graham's a pretty smart guy. So, you know, when uh, if um, if he's wrong on something, it might be, you know, just difficult to uh, to, to get your head around. I do think it's um, I mean, it's it is a challenge for investors who have expertise in one industry, say software, to start learning about other industries. Some of them, um, you know, can do it, but it takes uh, it, you know, it's easy to sort of get a little bit into it and then, um, uh, but sort of, you know, maybe uh, be missing some background knowledge. But um, uh, I don't know, you ask why is why is investment not flowing into these things? Um, 
I think this is an area where, unlike many other areas of technology, where there's sort of a straightforward story of, uh, look, you invest, you can create economic value, you can capture some of that value, you make a profit, and the investment makes a return. I think this is uh, more of an area where uh, it's the economic opportunities are kind of mixed up with ideological crusades, and society hasn't figured out how to integrate mm. and or reconcile those right now. Right, so we haven't figured out um, is there uh, is mm. there a a price uh, you know of carbon? Is there a cost to carbon? What is that cost? Uh, I think that and I mean I've just begun to research mm. this, and there's a lot of controversy around like look what are the long-term economic impacts, what could we do to mitigate changes in climate? Um, uh, you know, and how would those uh, and how would those impacts mm. be distributed around the world? Uh, if you look at there's a number of uh, you know estimates mm. out there uh, that show actually very modest hits to GDP from sort of long-term uh, global warming or other climate change. Now, there's a lot of controversy about this. Every time one of those reports comes out, other people, you know, push back and say, you're not taking into account such and such. But um, I actually haven't seen a really solid, uh, you know, estimate that that makes sense to me and that I believe that that, um, you know, that says that there's essentially an enormous kind of, uh, you know, economic imperative to be doing this. So I think um, I think that's kind of what's going on. We've got a, a mixture of economic imperatives and and um, sort of ideological crusades. There's a lot of, uh, I mean, as Karen was pointing out with the bamboo thing, right? There's a lot of uh, just lack of industrial literacy out there in terms of the kinds of solutions that people are proposing. Um, and so investors lost a bunch of money, I think, in, in uh, quote unquote clean tech uh, in in recent decades. Hmm. Well, I mean, to be fair. Um... It is odd to, I, I mean, I, I hear what you, I mean, just about on Paul, on Paul Graham, I mean, I think he's a brilliant, I think he's a genius, and I think he's contributed a huge amount. It's just very odd to me that he, he comes out of the woodwork so clearly in favor of an ESG technology that is just not advanced, right? I would expect that the guy that runs, y, founded Y Combinator would be all over this, would have a Y Combinator dedicated, a Y Combinator kind of cohort or, or branch dedicated to basic engineering technologies. Um, the, 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 you know, the, the concern I have is that, is that you know, you, you're making a good case that, making a point, and I accept the point, that there are, you know, data issues around the, you know, the cost curve of carbon and so forth, but it's definitely not in the same category as somebody promoting bamboo, right? And we're talking about ESG investors that are already committed to carbon-only investment funds. And it just shocks me that they haven't found their way into this space. I do hope that this episode will kind of gradually contribute to it because I think that I think I think that the the simplicity. I mean, okay, well, so this is the final point, really, which is what does society need to do to stabilize this conversation, right? Whether investment in information policy and governance terms. Um, and so we'll start with you, Jason. Maybe what would you like to happen in the public discourse? So it could be regulation, it could be education. How do you think that the the correct conversation should emerge most quickly to guide investment decisions, technical decisions, regulatory decisions, social, you know, discourse? What, what would you like to see in the in the conversational space in any? Yeah, I definitely think it begins with education and uh, begins with a basic understanding of and appreciation for what has created industrial civilization and, and what is the modern sort of standard of living and way of life that that enables. Uh, once we have that kind of fundamental industrial literacy in place, mm. then we can talk 
you know, th then we can start from a sort of shared viewpoint of, look, no matter what, we're not going back. We need to move forward. And so it's just a question of how do we make forward progress? You know, from there, now I'm not an economist, but, uh, you know, I think we need to figure out, is there a cost to carbon? And if so, what is it? Um, and, and once we know that, you know, sort of that mm -hmm. it's, it's that kind of fundamental input that could then uh, be an input to economic calculations that, you know, can't be made centrally, right? That need to be um, sort of made economy-wide by a bunch of players interacting in the market. Hmm. Karen, how would you like the discourse to be framed around anything to do with, you know, concrete and its impact and, and so forth? Well, I mean, I think this is a very good point you've raised, and I'm also kind of just staggered at the crazy investment decisions some of these venture capital people make because they just don't understand or they haven't bothered to understand the basic chemistry. And, and I think, you know, education is important, not just, um, as Jason has really well said, um, making people understand that, you know, what our civilization is based on. But also that, you know, we can't change the composition of the earth. You know, we stopped believing in alchemy um, 400 years ago. And um, sometimes people are trying to go back to this alchemic thinking. And, and it's not really difficult to explain these to people that, you know, we don't have a substitute for, for, for limestone. Um, but I do, you know, and, and I think, you know, there's also a lot of points about um, CO2 pricing. But I think for me, the most important thing when it comes to concrete is that we're having this debate in a very kind of Western context. You know, all of us on this call are from Europe and North America. And the big growth in demand for concrete is not going to take place in those countries. It's going to take place mm. in Africa, South America, India, etc. And, mm. um, you know, people are not willing to engage with developments necessarily in these countries. You know, we're, as I said, working with more than in more than 40 countries around the world. And, you know, it is more challenging to develop new technologies in some parts of the world than it is in others. But unless we are prepared to do that uh, and make investments there, which can sometimes be more risky for other reasons, then, then we're not going to change things much. Do you see any... Um... Do you see any role? I mean, what is, what is your general view of the international institutions that, that are engaged? What is your view of the intergovernmental system? Oh, gosh, I think that's a question way, way beyond my capacity to reply to it. I think we all know that it could be considerably improved, but it's well, that, that's kind of what I was getting at because, <laughs> yeah. Erin, uh, do you have any sense of the of, of the of governance issues and how the I mean, governance? I mean, the the, the the social discourse, whether governmental or journalistic or educational or kind of public chatter around these issues. Do you think have any sense of how it can be in, in, in improved? So I think we like in terms of the problem around concrete and how it should evolve. What we framed so far, and I totally agree with this, is we are going to use at least just as much, if not more concrete, and that is a good thing, mm. but we also need to reduce its emissions. Mm. Uh, and, and especially not just in Europe and North America, but in Africa and Asia. Mm. Uh, in terms of how it could be done, because it's mostly a governance question and it's mostly an investment question, 
Um, I would like mostly to point out to examples of actions that actually work on this or that are working right now. Um, the first would be um, you have some uh, a few places that have either passed regulation or are working towards it to, uh, so that for when you have public construction and you have like public procurement of concrete, there is more attention paid to the basically embodied carbon, the CO2 associated with that concrete. And that can be a big lever, especially in countries um, that are going to see or are seeing massive development because that also implies massive public procurement. So that's would a you say, yeah. Would you say on that point, and I'll come to you, Karen, on this in a second, would you say that um, the it would be a good idea for there to be a mandate, for example, a governmental mandate for either the use of recycled concrete or the use of concrete that can be recycled or just some other regulatory framing of recycling of concrete, just to take one example, and that could be driven by regulators. Is that a good idea, Erwin? So you, you have the question of recycling concrete as well. Uh, but generally, what, like the... The, the, the key question here, and I'm no expert, so I'm not going to pretend, uh, but the, 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 the question I've seen is how, do you, how can you um, put this kind of public procurement in place without uh, it being like basically just putting out investments into concrete, but more uh, something that, is not, that doesn't constrain um, the, uh, the industry too, uh, too much. The, one example I've seen is saying, uh, for any public project, we are going to have manufacturers come to us and bid or, or basically propose different concretes, and they are going to be uh, ranked based on cost and performance. But um, in, you're also going to have a premium in terms, a slight premium in terms of cost for something that is lower carbon or from recycled uh, concrete. Karen, do you think that regulating, for example, uh, recyclability or recycled content of concrete in, in construction projects, would that be a good idea or is that irrelevant? No, I think it's a good idea and it's already been done in many countries like in Switzerland, you know, you have to use recycled concrete. But again, we have to get out of this kind of Eurocentric thinking and sure. you know, in many parts of the world, there isn't the existing concrete to be recycled. And uh, yeah. you know, construction isn't as controlled as it is in, For sure. in, in other countries. So, uh, you know, again, I think we've got to look more broadly about this, but all the time coming back to, you know, how we can do things in our little part of the world and on things like energy, clearly Europe and North America are the worst polluters, but in terms of, uh, using cement and concrete, the use is comparatively low. I mean, we hear about this 8% figure worldwide, but in fact, in the US, it's only something like 2 or 3% um, because they don't use all that much and they have an awful lot of CO2 emissions from other things. Um, so we, we have to address these other parts of the world and think, and I think then it's really a question of, of education, you know, right the way through from, uh, you know, users in the field to civil engineers. Civil engineers often don't have much um, learning about concrete as a material, only from sort of structural yeah. calculations. So there's, you know, there's, we need to work on a lot of fronts at once. Well, so let's round up in, in that in that in that in that vein. So, so Jason, I mean, maybe you've said it already. What would you like to see happen in the next five or ten years around the concrete and cement issue that would 
that would be a, that would be the a kind of dream dream of progress. Whether is it a technical progress? Is it investment? Is it education? Is it what is the best thing that could happen on the issue of concrete um, from your perspective in the next five or ten years? Uh, I mean, I think sort of as Irvin said, you know, the best thing that could happen with concrete is just that we keep making it and keep using a lot of it because it's uh, it's actually a boon for for humanity. Right. Um, you know, uh, obviously, technical breakthroughs mm. would be great um, if we can find ways to make concrete even cheaper or even stronger or faster setting or or, or whatever. Um, that would be excellent. Um, you know, but the biggest uh, the biggest thing that I see is is actually a risk that I would like to avoid from exactly the conversation that we've been having. Uh, I, I think the some of the the risk of the kind of political and ideological context around this is that we end up with a, a lot of bans or mandates. Um, and I think that, you know, those sorts mm -hmm. of things tend to be extremely blunt instruments that are very hard to undo when uh, technology mm -hmm. and, and, and economic mm -hmm. considerations shift. And so, I mean, I think it's much better if we can have, mm -hmm. you know, uh, again, if it's needed, something along the lines of a, of a carbon tax or cap and trade or, you know, that kind of thing, rather than these sort of blunt, you must use this or you must do that. Um, because those are the types of things that allow... Mm -hmm many more sort of nuanced decisions to be made and for uh, and for things to evolve as uh, technology and conditions change. That's true. Just to, just on that point, though, I mean, just to kind of put the just to, 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 to clarify, I mean, cap and trade systems rely on there being a non-market cap, right? That's not a price set cap on sulfur or carbon dioxide. It's just a scientifically set cap. And so there is definitely a kind of interaction between pricing mechanisms and something that's not pricing or market oriented. But I mean, I hear what you say, which is that, right, so the reason why we want to use cap and trade systems is that we want to have as much, if I'm, if I'm interpreting correctly, market flexibility as possible. Right. I mean, you have to figure out, look, what is the, uh, you know, I mean, uh, markets only work when everybody's kind of rights are protected. Uh, and if we get into a situation where you know, one right. person's activity is and is ends up impinging on somebody else's uh, livelihood or uh, you know or well-being. That's exactly why we have governments and why right and and um, uh, you know that's the the, the yeah. best role the government can play is to yeah. sort of like figure out where those boundaries are um, and how to make sure people don't step on each other's toes. But, yeah. 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 Okay, Owen, for you, what's the dream scenario in the next five or ten years in relation to to concrete? Could be any dimension of change, but what would you love to see? I think one of the um, biggest open opportunities for the industry in general is that from what I'm seeing, the big groups in the cement and concrete industry, the big businesses, are all originally cement manufacturers. So most of the attention in terms of how to change the industry and how to reduce emissions is on the cement side. And there is little or at least way less attention paid to the concrete formulation itself and then especially how it's used. Uh, yeah. And because especially because it involves uh, discussions outside of your own industry with the other actors, with engineers, designers yeah. and with real estate as well. And but there is a lot of opportunity, especially in the short term, to reduce emissions by 10, 10, 20, even more, 20% uh, even more, uh, if th uh, those discussions are engaged and there is just more cross-communication uh, on both sides. Mm. So, so, Karen, what's your dream scenario for, for the world of concrete and cement in the next five or 10 years? 
Well, I think a lot of good things have been said, and I, I agree with all of those. But I'd also like to say that, you know, um, we have technologies like our, our LC3, which can be implemented, you know, very fast and actually can save costs. And, you know, if some of these, um, you know, people who want to invest in green products uh, want to put their money where it's actually going to have a real benefit, then um, you know, this would be a very good way to to get something done very quickly. I mean, thank you. I'll just just to, my, my sense of the opportunity in the next five or 10 years and probably even less is to recenter a lot of the conversation around uh, carbon climate sustainability on the concrete issue. Right, because there are so many basics here that aren't going away. The nature of civilization, the nature of growing civilizations, international development, uh, the inherent non-toxicity of concrete, the opportunity of concrete to re-sequester re its own carbon, the opportunity of concrete to be recycled. Um, these are all things that are just not clear enough in the debate. And I think that there's so much distraction around, let's say, nuclear power, which is part of a much, I mean, I think a much more complex debate. And there are much more nuances that relate to your point, Jason, around the price of carbon and exactly how, you know, we're going to invest and deploy these things, whereas concrete is just central to modern living. And so I would love to see a, a centering of the conversation around these issues. Definitely investment in the kinds of things that you're working on, uh, Karen, to, to kind of accelerate through to the solutions that, you know, we're told that we, uh, we need and want. Um, I think this is, a, this is a great conversation and thank you for, for putting in so many different perspectives going from the super technical to the very, the very generic. Um, obviously, lots more to be said, but I think this is a good start. Thank you very much. Well, thank you for bringing yes, it together. Thanks. Thanks, for, thanks for organizing the discussion, yes.